The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. For those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Tobias. I'm uh, one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King, and Penny uh, is away uh, this morning, and so I have the privilege of opening God's Word for us, and uh, we are continuing in our uh, study of the Gospel of Mark, um, which Mark himself tells us right from the beginning uh, in verse 1, uh, is an account of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, God's very own Son. And last week we heard some pretty good news in Penny's sermon on Mark 2, 1 through 12, didn't we? I mean, here we had the story of this paralyzed man kindly brought by his friends to Jesus for healing. And what happens? Not only does Jesus miraculously heal him of his paralysis so that he's able to get up in front of the crowd and walk away, but he frees him from the pain and limitations of a deeper wound. He frees him from the burden of his sin. And he says to him with the compassion and the power of the heavenly Father, son, your sins are forgiven. Friends, this was the best news of all. And it astonished the crowd so much so that they glorified God because of it. But you know, not everyone thought this was good news did they? You remember Mark tells us that the scribes were there as well, and they thought this was anything but good news. In fact, they thought Jesus' claim to have the authority to forgive sins was the ravings of a godless blasphemer. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to hear Mark tell us more good news about Jesus. And like last week, we're going to see, once again, that not everyone thought it was good news. And the conflict that we'll see between Jesus and his opponents this morning invites us to reflect, perhaps more deeply than we have, on the opening of Mark's gospel and to ask ourselves as we listen, are we hearing this message rightly? Are we seeing it for what it is? that it's the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, God's very own son? Or are we missing it? And if we are, why? So if you haven't turned in, in your copy of God's word, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter two. We're gonna read from verses 13 through 22. It says this, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who, were fo who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why 
does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we bow before you, creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen. We bow before you and exalt your name. We praise you and thank you for your kindness to us. And one of those kindnesses is your word. We thank you, Lord, for this gospel. We ask, Lord, that this morning you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Make our hearts soft by the power of your spirit. Illumine our minds that we may hear afresh more about the good news of Jesus, that we may see and hear more about who you are, what you've done, and what you call us to. Oh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you noticed as I read, our passage this morning is made up of two neat scenes, and it's just nicely organized in our Bibles, usually with subheadings. <clears throat> the first scene involves Jesus' calling of Levi and the feast that followed, and the second involves a question posed to Jesus about his and his disciples' lack of fasting. And both of these scenes, in their own way, are meant to tell us more good news about Jesus. But they also tell us, no surprise, that some, namely the Pharisees and the scribes, continued to reject it. And I think for us to hear afresh the good news Mark wants us to hear, and to understand why some were missing it, and perhaps why we continue to miss it too. We need to pay attention to the theme of identity that ties these two scenes together. You see, I think in the first scene, Mark invites us especially to reflect on our own identity as human beings and to ask ourselves, who am I? What's my deepest need? And what's the Lord calling me to? And in the second scene, I think Mark invites us to ask fundamentally, who is Jesus? And what's appropriate behavior for a community that sees him for who he is? 
So let's turn our attention to the first scene in verses 13 through 17. And here we see several things happening. We see Jesus once again teaching the crowds by the Sea of Galilee. And while he's there, he happens to see Levi, who in Matthew's gospel, in his account of the story, we learn is called Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. And we hear Jesus tell him to follow him. And he does. No other explanation. And after this, who knows how much time transpired, Mark doesn't tell us, we see Jesus reclining in a home, enjoying a meal with his disciples, along with a group of tax collectors and sinners. And in Luke's gospel, in his account of the story, we learn that they're really, they're in the home of Levi, who's thrown a great feast in honor of Jesus. And so we can imagine the scene. We can imagine that they were all most likely reclining on couches as they ate, as was the Roman custom. And they're grabbing food with their hands or a spoon if they happen to have one. From, all from this low central table that was spread out with delicious dishes for the feast. Friends, this was a joyous time of rich food and fellowship. Levi had splashed out with an intimate and extravagant display of hospitality all in honor of Jesus. But we also see that there were some who were not at all pleased with what was happening here, don't we? Mark tells us that the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled when they heard about this. We don't know how they heard about it. Mark doesn't tell us. They certainly weren't guests of Levi and participants, but however they heard about it, when they did, they questioned Jesus' disciples. Uh, and really, they were questioning Jesus himself, who was responsible for them. And so they said to them, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And let's be clear, this wasn't an innocuous question. It was provocation. And I love the way Eugene Peterson captures what's behind their question when he renders it this way. What kind of example is this, acting cozy with the riffraff? <laughs> now, this wasn't an innocuous question. It was dripping with disdain for what they'd heard Jesus and his disciples had done. And you know, their disdain had been building. I mean, just in the previous passage, in the healing of the paralytic, they'd heard Jesus claim the authority to forgive sins. And in so doing, they'd rightly perceived that what he was in fact doing was claiming divine identity for himself. And because of that, they accused him of blasphemy. And so here with their question, what they were really doing was calling Jesus out. And they were saying something like, listen, Jesus, you think God is on your side? Because by some strange delusion, you actually think you are God? That's not only absurd, it's evil. The one holy and everlasting God would never condone eating with such folk. Friends, what accounts for their animosity toward Jesus and, and what he was doing? Well, I think reflecting on the calling of Levi right at the beginning of the scene is key for us. You see, Mark tells us that Levi was a tax collector. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, okay, so what? 
What am I missing? We're all familiar with taxes. I mean, it's not like we love them or anything, but we know they're the reality, living under government. What's the big deal here? But friends, we need to keep in mind that tax collectors, especially Jewish tax collectors, were despised among the Jews, both because of who they worked for and how they conducted their business. You see, what Levi was probably doing here on the shores of Galilee was collecting taxes on behalf of the local governor, Herod Antipas. And it's likely that he was collecting taxes on local commerce, especially the fishing trade. And because of that, it's kind of intriguing to think that he might have already known and had uncomfortable dealings with the four fishermen called earlier in the gospel, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But whether he did or he didn't know them, the point is that Levi was probably already despised by his countrymen simply because he was seen as a traitor. He was seen as one who was working for the man, Herod Antipas, who was himself nothing more than a tool of the occupying Roman Empire. And on top of this, tax collectors had developed a reputation for defrauding their fellow countrymen by demanding over and above, often exorbitantly, what was actually owed in their taxes simply so that they could line their own pockets. This is why we hear the tax collector Zacchaeus say in Luke 19, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. But perhaps what's most significant to our passage, the thing that gets at the heart of the Pharisees and their scribes' opposition to what Jesus was doing here, is that they viewed tax collectors and others who didn't live by their rules as sinners, and therefore as unworthy of God's favor. You see, in their zealous self-delusion, the Pharisees thought they could move God to bring salvation and send forth his Messiah and crush the mighty empire of Rome and establish once and for all his everlasting kingdom. They thought they could do this by living scrupulously holy lives. To put it another way, the Pharisees thought that the Lord would bring his salvation only for those who were already living righteously. And in their pride, they thought that they were not only capable of such righteous living, but they were actually and truly living in such a manner. And so this is why they opposed Jesus. And this is why they excluded from fellowship those like the despised tax collectors who didn't live by their rules of purity and who were thus defiled by the sinful world. Their motto is captured in Jonathan Swift's hilarious little jingle. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We can't have heaven crammed. <laughs> But friends, notice again how Jesus responded to their question in verse 17. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
You see, the Pharisees and their scribes, unlike Levi and the other disciples, were missing the good news about Jesus that was unfolding before their very eyes because they thought they were healthy. And in their self-delusion, they, they simply couldn't see that the Messiah they longed for had already come in the person of Jesus and that he had come as a divine physician to heal the sick. And friends, that's why this scene of the calling of Levi and the feast that followed gives us such a clear portrait of the good news about Jesus. You see, at the heart of the gospel is the message that we, all of us, like Levi, are outcasts and sinners. And yet we are welcomed into the Lord's family by his grace, despite our lack of worth. Levi understood this. He had an honest grasp of his own identity. He understood that he had no right to Jesus' kindness and compassion. He had no badge of righteousness to wear. Indeed, he had nothing to offer him. He was simply a patient in need of healing. And because of that, he recognized that the Lord's acceptance and fellowship was the greatest news he could ever hope to hear. Friends, can you imagine what it must have been like for Levi to be approached by our Lord Jesus and to hear a fellow Jew say to him, follow me. It must have been utterly overwhelming. And you know, I love how N.T. Wright captures the power of this scene. Listen to what he says. We don't know whether Levi had chosen the job. Probably it was the only one he could find. We don't know whether he approved of the Herodian family and Antipas in particular. Most ordinary Jews disliked and resented them, but they were in power, the Romans were backing them, and there wasn't much anyone could do about it. But Levi, son of Alphaeus, had to sit there taking the anger and resentment into his own heart and soul. And then one day Jesus came by. He didn't shout. He didn't swear. He didn't grumble. He did something totally unexpected. He said, follow me. And Levi, we're told, no, no doubt with total astonishment all over his face, he got up and followed him. Wouldn't you have done? It was perhaps the first time for ages that someone had treated him as a human being instead of a piece of dirt. Friends, that is the beauty of the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus. The Lord of all welcomes us into his company despite our dirt and unworthiness. And as a divine physician, he makes us whole. As we turn our attention in the time remaining to the second scene in verses 18 through 22, I want us to keep in mind this, this theme of identity that ties these two scenes together. And I want us to notice especially how this scene focuses our attention on who Jesus is and why, who Jesus is and what our response should be in light of his identity. And so in verse 18, we're told that both John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And Mark tells us that people, although Matthew's account of the story clarifies for us that these people were actually John's disciples, 
But anyway, these people asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, what we shouldn't miss is that this question, like the Pharisees' question in the previous scene, is not an innocuous question. It's another question. And it's, it's coming from a claim on the part of the questioners of religious superiority. And it's as if they were saying to Jesus, listen, Jesus, real worshipers fast. Y'all don't. What's up with that? So where was this coming from? Well, we need to understand that in the first century, there were a host of reasons a Jew would practice fasting. For example, one might fast because of grief at the loss of a loved one or as a sign of earnest devotion to God. Or one would certainly fast on the Day of Atonement, which was a day of fasting explicitly prescribed in the Old Testament. And of course, the practice of fasting, like any ascetic practice, could be abused by turning one's humiliation before God into a way of exalting oneself. And in fact, we hear Jesus give a warning against this very thing when he says in Matthew 6, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And it kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, how these questioners knew that the, that the Pharisees were fasting? But I think we need to be careful not to be too cynical about those who are fasting in this scene and think that it was just superficial religiosity and nothing more. After all, Matthew tells us in his account of the story in Matthew 9, 15, that what they were doing was a sign of mourning. And I think this is helpful. You see, we know that what both the Pharisees and John's disciples shared was a belief that the kingdom of God was still coming and that in order to usher it in, the proper preparation still needed to be made, one of which was mourning over Israel's sin. And so we can imagine that what both groups were engaging in was for them a solemn and necessary, albeit misguided, act intended to hasten the coming of the Lord. But here's the problem. Jesus and his disciples weren't following suit. Indeed, the previous scene makes it all too clear that instead of mourning, they were feasting and celebrating. And so what could Jesus say in his defense? How did he respond to his critics? Well, the rest of the passage is taken up with his response. And, and, and skipping over verse 19 for a moment, let me note just briefly that in part of his response in verse 20, we hear Jesus affirm that it will be entirely appropriate for his followers to fast in the days of his arrest, trial, and crucifixion as they mourn his temporary departure. That's what he's getting at in verse 20. But it should be temporary mourning. After all, he promised in his resurrection, in his ascension, that he is with us. We live in the abiding presence of the Lord. And so our gathering together should not be marked by mourning, but by joy. 
And we also hear Jesus in verses 21 and 22 speaking parabolically about old and new cloth and, and old and new wine and wineskins and the destructive results that inevitably occur when the two are combined. And perhaps the imagery here seems odd to us. But wine and cloth are images that naturally flow from the image of a wedding. They would be there. And, 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 and Jesus has introduced this image in verse 19, so it makes sense that his mind goes there. But at any rate, I think the point Jesus is making with these images is clear. And, and I like the way David Garland gets at it. He says that what Jesus is saying here is that he's not simply a reformer of the old, but one who will transform the old. There can be no concessions, no accommodations, and no compromises with the old. The old exemplified by the condemnation and exclusion of sinners in the previous controversy that we just read about, and the practice of fasting in this debate cannot contain the new. But friends, these parts of his response, they're really rooted in what he says in verse uh, right at first uh, in verse 19. And so I want us to pay special attention to that. Notice what he says there. He says to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Friends, do you see what Jesus is doing here? It's easy to miss if our ears aren't attuned to the way the Old Testament frequently uses the imagery of the bridegroom, particularly in the prophets. But what Jesus is doing here is making an astounding claim about his own divine identity and what's appropriate behavior for those who see him rightly. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 62, verses four and five. Speaking to Israel, he says, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In other words, it's as if Jesus were saying in response to his critics, look y'all, you've gotten it all wrong because you've gotten me wrong. You think that now is a time for sadness and solemnity while you look for the arrival of the bridegroom, but Yahweh, the bridegroom, has already arrived at the wedding. He's arrived in me. And now is a time for celebration. You know, I love how Larry Hurtado captures the significance of what's going on in this scene and ties it together with the previous one. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus' response here indicates that he shared neither their view that the kingdom of God would not come until Israel was ready for it, nor their understanding of the present as a time of mourning in the absence of the kingdom. Jesus' image of a wedding, complete with guests and a bridegroom, 
a joyous, exuberant occasion in ancient Israel to describe the moment means that he saw the kingdom of God already approaching and that the time was ripe for joy and celebration. But if the kingdom of God is approaching a sinful, unworthy Israel, it means that the kingdom of God is based on God's gracious design to save even the unworthy. This in turn explains both why Jesus' disciples are not fasting to bring the kingdom and why Jesus welcomes the unworthy, the sinners, along with the, the rest, as he does in the preceding passage. So friends, how should we respond to this story? How should we respond to what we've heard this morning? Well, for a start, if we've heard Mark rightly, I think we should be overflowing with joy that by his grace we have fellowship with Jesus, our friend, our healer, and our bridegroom. We should be belting out in our hearts amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But you know, I also think we should be preparing ourselves to hear the convicting voice of the Spirit as he exposes our own latent prejudices and he calls us to live out the joy of our faith in ways that might be difficult or uncomfortable for us, in ways that stretch us. You see, I think it's all too easy for us to, to give lip service to gospel grace and to acknowledge that none of us is righteous, no, not one, but then to exclude from our fellowship those we, for whatever reason, think are unworthy of our kindness or just too difficult to befriend. Brothers and sisters, this is a real danger for us. And it is the exact opposite of the example the Lord gave us in this passage. I think C.S. Lewis put what I'm getting at so beautifully. Listen to what he says, and we'll close with this. He says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. It is in the light of these two overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Brothers and sisters, what would it be like 
How would it change our community and the community around us if rather than avoiding or denigrating or excluding those we dislike for whatever reason, we saw in them instead Levi's, potential worshipers of the one true God and fellow heirs of the king. Brothers and sisters, it would be no less than a picture of what we've seen about the good news of Jesus today. And so as we rejoice in the good news about Jesus in this passage, let it be our prayer that the Lord by his spirit will so work in our hearts and in our community the same welcoming, kindness, love, and compassion for those we know and those we're yet to meet that he himself demonstrated. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you again. Thank you for your word. Oh, Father, we submit ourselves to you. We confess that we are sick and that you are our healer. And we praise you for it. Oh, Father, as we leave these walls today, we ask, Lord, that you will, by your spirit, Give us the same love and compassion and kindness for those we meet that you have demonstrated here. We pray all this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.